Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time for another Colch Narrow Chat, a twofer this week. We already did one on Tuesday with our most frequent guest, Robbie Dunn. Today, we have a first-time guest on the program. He is a London-based journalist who has worked a lot with Football España. He has lived in Spain, in Seville, as a matter of fact, and I'm delighted to have him on. Alan Feely is our guest on today's edition of Colch Narrow Chat. Hello, Alan. Hey, Jeremy. How's it going? Thank you for having me on. Fantastic, man. Great to have you. Really excited to talk about this partidazo with you. Match day seven at the Ramon Sanchez Pizjuan, Sevilla taking on Atletico. This is usually uh, one of those top tier fixtures, Alan. This is one of those where you usually circle your circle on your calendars uh, before the season begins. Perennial top four European contenders. But neither one, I think it's fair to say, has been particularly convincing this year, uh, especially Sevilla, but we'll get to them in a minute. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on how you think Atletico's season has begun. Um, I think there have been some positives, but also some negatives. I'd like to know your thoughts on where you see the Colchoneros entering this game. Yeah, well, I guess it's a funny one because maybe 12 months ago, we'd be looking at this fixture and saying that it's the two pretenders to the throne, really, even though Atletico were reigning champions last season. Um, I just think that Normally, we would consider these two teams to be the candidates to usurp either of the big two if one of them were to slip up in any way. But this season, it's obviously very different. Um, obviously, Atletico are in better shape than Sevilla. I was actually at Atletico's opening game of the season against Hitafe at the Coliseum, Alfonso Perez, and they obviously won 3-0. 
they were very impressive. Um, it looked interesting, you know, Axel Witzel playing centre back, doing quite a good job there. Uh, that kind of, you know, front line with Alvaro Morato, Joao Felix, and Natalie Antoine Griezmann alternating quite well. It looked very promising, to be honest with you. And I think that, you know, I wasn't the only one very impressed by Delico after the opening weekend. I remember it was a hot Monday evening at the Coliseum, Alfonso Perez. But then since then, it's been kind of, you know, pretty inconsistent from them. Um, not really the kind of form that would suggest they have what it takes to challenge the top two of the season. I do believe that it's going to be kind of a multi-tier league. I don't think anybody's going to touch Madrid or Barcelona this year. I think that's uh, that's a race of its own. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, given the way they've started, I wouldn't even be completely confident that, you know, third place is guaranteed to be Atletico's because we've seen good form from the likes of Athletic Club, from Real Betis, from... Villarreal from Asasuna as well even so it seems to be quite an open race for that you know third and fourth spot and I still think they have too much quality to not make the top four this season but I don't think that a, a top three finish is nailed on um, however I'm a big fan of Cholo Simeone I think they have too much quality to maintain this kind of malaise throughout the whole year and I do think that come the business end of the season they'll have their act together and be able to finish quite strongly and, and we'll um We'll probably finish third, but yeah, it's not been ideal for them. I think they're not being strengthened properly in the summer window. Mm-hmm. You know, the signings they made, Nahuel Molina hasn't really done that well, has he? They're not strengthened in other areas. So yeah, it's kind of a disappointing part, I guess, from your perspective. Um, but I think that you have enough quality in your ranks to sort it out eventually. I certainly hope so. <laughs> Finishing outside of the top four for the first time in a decade would not be ideal, Alan. But no, you're you're right. It's looking like a very competitive league for the other 18, as they're popularly known. I mean, Madrid and Barcelona are, are they, very much on course for a 95-point league and leaving everyone else in the dust. And we can talk about whether that's good or bad, whether it's healthy or not. It's, it's exciting, certainly, for those two sets of fans and for neutrals who, you know, love seeing Robert Lewandowski just bang in 30 goals in his first season, uh, at least from the Barca perspective. But, yeah, I, I think you're right about Atletico. Is It's an inconsistent group, very talented group, no doubt, but several key players in key positions who are, unfortunately, injury-prone. You have uh, strong starts from Betis and especially from Athletic, who have really impressed me under Valverde in, what, his third stint at the club? I lose track. I think that's his third stint. Uh, third, third. Uh, but Athletic have been super impressive. Uh, obviously, Nico Williams had a very good international break uh, for Spain, setting up Morata for the winner against uh, uh, Portugal a couple of days ago in that Nations League game. It's going to be really tight, I think, for... It could, even that race could go as high as third place. It could be really tight to kind of sort out who's going to finish where. We can't forget about Villarreal either. Jerome uh, Moreno's got to be healthy for that to happen. But I think Villarreal also have a very good coach and a very good squad. They've already beaten Atletico this season and a key head-to-head matchup. So it, it's competitive this year, certainly for the other 18 teams. and for uh, but, but for Sevilla, Alan, uh, it's looking like they're going to be taking a back seat in this race. They have just one win uh, in all competitions, actually, this season. Uh, a draw and a loss in their two Champions League games and just one win from six in La Liga. Uh, about a year ago, Alan, I, I distinctly remember seeing you tweet about this and a, and a lot of other uh, pundits and analysts and fans did too that you know this could be a, a title challenger here. I mean, Sevilla had a very impressive 2021 season. I think their highest ever points total in La Liga was 77. They finished fourth in a really competitive title race that went down to the end um, and then started last season very strong not playing great football not the most attractive football but still finding ways to win games 
And then the second half of the season came along and just everything fell apart. And that malaise has continued into this season. So I, I guess it, it's a simple question, but I think it might be a pretty complex answer, Alan. What's gone wrong for Julian Lopetegui at Sevilla? I think it's not just Julian Lopetegui. I think it's several factors. I mean, first of all, it wasn't just me who thought they had a shot of the title. It was Sevilla themselves. Oh, yeah. They held on to Jules Koundé and Diego Carlos, mm-hmm. even though normally in the way they do business, they would have sold at least one of them um, last year to basically prevent the situation they had this summer where they sold both of them within the same window and didn't replace them adequately. Um, they didn't do that. They kept them both because they thought they had a real shot at the title. And they brought in Anthony Martial from Manchester United, hoping that his goals would replace... What they basically haven't had since Wissam Benyeder went to Monaco, mm-hmm. um, which is a reliable goal scorer. That didn't happen, obviously. Um, several things happened, like Fernando Regis, who's a really key part of the Sevilla team, the defensive midfielder, um, was injured from the second half of last season. And they just kind of lost the ability to win games. I remember being at the Sanchez Pijuan in the beginning of April, I think it was, when they were playing Real Madrid. And it was the moment the title went, because um, they were winning 2-1, I think it was against Madrid and then Madrid came back to win the game in the dying minutes and Karen Benzema scored the winning goal very, yeah. very late. and it was really just a crushing blow and it was the moment where all hope for the title no matter how slim completely evaporated and it since comes to light that Jules Koundé decided to leave Sevilla that day he said I can't stay at this club because they just don't have the requisite character talent or belief to go and win the title um, so that coupled with the very disappointing performance in Europe, both in the Champions League and the Europa League, meant that last season was very underwhelming. This summer has not been much better. Um, as I mentioned, they lost both centre-backs. They didn't strengthen the squad properly. They run in Isco, who you know, hasn't performed consistently over the course of the season since probably 2016, 2017, 2017, 2018, that kind of time. They didn't bring in a striker. They didn't strengthen the four positions and they just got a year older, basically. Fernando has returned from injury and he looks like an old man. Um, the team lacks quality in key areas and the football being played by Lapategui isn't delivering results and when your footballer's results football which Lapategui's is that's what it's predicated on um, you better be getting results because if you're not getting results things go wrong and fingers have to be bl- uh, pointed and the blame has to be shared around and a club like Sevilla you know prides itself on attractive football in Andalusia they like their teams to play front foot attractive attacking football so someone like Abategi, who's from the Basque country, coming in with a kind of philosophy that's the antithesis of that, didn't go down well in the beginning, but when the results came, they kind of made peace with that idea. But once the results went, there was always going to be problems. So, yeah, it's it's a multi, like, like you mentioned, it's a multi kind of faceted thing. It's, um, you know, taking a chance and not taking that chance. It's finances. It's, you know, for the time, players getting older. It's other teams strengthening. It's several factors, basically. But, uh, yeah, it's been a very tough start to the season. And even though I had a feeling Sevilla would struggle this year, I didn't think they'd be as poor as they have been. Yeah, they currently sit 15th in La Liga. And to me, I've been watching them quite a bit this season. Uh, just, the, my eyes aren't deceiving me. You know, they've this was the best defense in the league a year ago. Arguably the best goalkeeper outside of Courtois last season was Bono. They've shipped 11 goals in six games. Uh, that's not going to get it done, to say the least. Um, and I, I think the summer business, to me, Alan, looked a bit over, or not over, underwhelming. Uh, Marcao was the big defensive signing, or one of them, to replace uh, Diego Carlos, 
who went to Aston Villa and then sadly got hurt. Uh, Marcao hasn't played yet through injury. Uh, Nianzu has been bedded in. He's played five times, started three games, but he's been a little up and down. He's 20 years old and was playing at Byron's B team. That makes sense, right? Um, Kasper Dolberg came in. That was a bit of a strange signing. He's played only once in La Liga. Um, Jose Carmona's been impressive in, in relatively limited time, but he's only made a couple of starts. Really, this is just rolling it over from one year to the next. Fernando is 35, and he definitely looks it. Uh, he's a player who is absolutely critical to Lopetegui's system working, and, you know, he's old. <laughs> he, got, he, he got hurt last year. Juan Jordan looks a totally different player from what he was a couple of years ago. Like, between Rafa Mir, Yusef Nasiri, and Dolberg, they just don't have enough goals. Yeah, that's exactly it, basically. And, I mean, it's easy to say, but, you know, scoring a goal is the hardest thing in football. And finding goal scorers at the elite level is very difficult. And the reality is that Sevilla just don't have the financial muscle to compete with the other clubs. Um, like Manchi speaking, before the transfer window closed, when Sevilla basically done all their business, said that there's too much money on the pitch. That's basically it. Um, they're spending too much of the finances they have on players and on talent. And that was part of a short-term kind of gamble, really, to try and break into that top top two or maybe win the title in the 2021-22 season. It didn't work, and they're paying for those sins right now. Um, so that's basically it, you know. It's financial because not only is La Liga's spending power decreased, um, and it's been quite dramatic, I think, dramatically felt this summer more, than, more so than other summers, but mm-hmm. so competing with clever clubs, like, I mean, gone are the days of the Premier League being full of money and stupid like the Premier League clubs are now being better run they're finding talent in more obscure places and they're basically doing what the likes of Sevilla um, did so well for years in terms of you know finding these gems in the market whereas now they're doing it themselves like the likes of Brentford uh, you know Southampton some of these clubs aren't huge clubs they're not well resourced like the other Premier League clubs are but they're doing clever business you know so Sevilla are competing on two fronts they can't have the finances to bring in big name players or top quality players and they're also basically being out hunted by Premier League clubs with better resources in smaller markets too so instead of competing with the likes of I don't know Spurs for a player they're actually competing with the likes of Brentford and you know other mid-table Premier League clubs and in the case of Diego Carlos they're getting their player poached when the key player is poached by a mid-table Premier League club you know because of the overwhelming financial might of the Premier League so it's a very difficult situation for them, to be honest with you. Modern football, right? Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's, it's complete um, kind of dysmorphous, if that makes sense. And yeah. We felt more and more and more in the coming years. Yeah, Diego Carlos going to Aston Villa was a bit of a surprise. Um, you know, and uh, Bobacar Camaro, who was going to sign for Atletico on a free transfer, he ends up going to Villa as well uh, because the wages on offer were just more significant. It was a bigger offer that they made. Atletico couldn't compete with them. And, and even within La Liga, Alan, Sevilla can't compete. Um, Manchi's comments after the Kunde transfer were really enlightening and eye-opening. Uh, he's, he said, we have to be realistic. We are not close to Barcelona's tier. If they make an offer this competitive, regardless of the economic levers, regardless of the palancas, if they make an offer this competitive and the player wants to leave, we got no choice. Yeah, that's exactly it, you know. Um, and to be fair to Koundé, you know, he, he could have gone in the summer of 2020 when Man City came in from him. He spoke to Pep Guardiola. Mm-hmm. Sevilla got him to stay. He accepted that. 
you know, happen again in summer 2021 when Chelsea came in for him. So I think Manchi said, he admitted, he's like, I'm not going to say no to a player three times, you know, yeah. because in the day, Koundé's been in Sevilla for three seasons. He's done superbly well for them. He's become probably, in my opinion, the best centre-back in La Liga. If you're not one of the best in European football in general. And he's getting on, you know, he's still young, obviously, but he's 23 years old, I believe. He's coming to the stage now where he needs to step up into the elite of the elite, if that makes sense. And that's what he's doing at Barcelona. He's at a club where you know, competing to win every title in the game. Um, and that's where he needs to be right now because, like it or not, Sevilla aren't going to be there anytime soon. So I think it was only fair from the club's perspective towards the player to allow him to go um, and kind of, you know, achieve ambitions that he couldn't achieve in Sevilla. And like I said, it was after the Madrid game at the P1 last season that he made up his mind, apparently. He said, there's no way I'm staying here because any shot that this team had at competing for titles kind of evaporated that night it wasn't just the way they lost the game it was the manner in which they did it was really deflating if that makes sense so yeah it's so bringing times for Sevilla for sure yeah they were they were 2-0 up in that game weren't they and then they lost 3-2 yeah exactly oh yeah. it was brutal yeah it was incredible incredible night that was a rough game what did you make of the East Coast signing Alan I was really unsure about this one because as you said a few minutes ago Isco hasn't really been, well, Isco in several years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes sense in some regard because Lapetegui has worked with Isco before, mm-hmm. both with the national team and also with yeah, Madrid, and got good good football out of him on both occasions, especially with the national team. I think he was a key part of his Spain. Um, you know, similarly, Isco is Andalusian. He's from Malaga, nearby Malaga, which is you know, a couple of hours from Sevilla, but it's still very much in that region. So it makes sense from that perspective that if he was going to step down um, from Madrid and that level, that somewhere like Sevilla would make sense. Um, but, you know, there's always a risk with him. His fitness has been questionable for the past few years. His his weight has fluctuated. His desire has been questioned. You know, his attitude has been questioned. So it's it's a big gamble because you can't bank him are bank on him to perform over a 38-game season, you know. So, it's a risk. I mean, he has a talent, there's no doubt about that. He's naturally very, very talented footballer. And we've seen in the 2016-2017 season, especially that when he's on song, he's one of the best players in, in European football. So, I get why they made that risk, or they took that risk. But the issue is whether he can replicate it. And so far, he's not been able to do that. He's been good, he's not been bad, but he's not be nearly as influential as Sevilla would like. And also, Julian Lopetegui's side of football with this team is quite negative, quite safety first, quite conservative. So there's not really as much opportunities within the game for him to shine, if that makes sense. You mm-hmm. need a player to kind of step up and take those chances. I feel like Evrebenegui, when he was here in the 2019-20 season, he was the kind of guy who would step up and almost arrogantly seize control of games and decide games with his talent. But... Isco seems a more docile character than that, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, it's a gamble that might still work out, but so far it's not been overly inspiring. Ever Benega, what a player he was. I was amazing. Delightful. That team was very good because he was just so, like, he was like a lightning rod, you know, and he was just able to just turn games in his head and he was aggressive and nasty. Like, he wasn't a player who could kind of consistently perform over a full season, but I remember in 2019-20, they came back from lockdown and, from that period where the league restarted in, I think it was mid-June, um, with the Betis game, Seville Derby, 
up until the Europa League final against Inter Milan, he was sensational. So yeah, he was very, he was very badly missed when he went to Saudi Arabia after that season, and he's not been replaced since. Yeah, it's hard to replace a player with that kind of personality, charisma, and just overall talent. And I thought Isco, I, I think I think you're right, Isco was, was an effort to replace him or replace parts of him. But to me, Alan Isco is kind of reminiscent of what Sevilla already have. He resembles what Sevilla already have in terms of players like Papu Gomez, Oliver Torres. He, he's just kind of a, not necessarily a retread, that's not the word I want to use, but he resembles what is already in this squad. Sevilla, I think, needed someone from midfield who can link that area of the pitch to the forwards in the final third, someone who can link midfield to attack. And Sevilla still don't really have that because their forwards still can't score any goals. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. the problem with Abitake too is that he often doesn't know how to use players like Papu or Arbatares. I mean, I think... With respect to Oliver, I think Papu is another level. I think Papu is a really talented footballer. Mm-hmm. We've seen with Argentinian national team that when he's played in his correct position as that kind of number ten or that kind of you know uh, creative playmaker, he can really kill basically because he's such a unique skill set and he's such a good player in his day. But as the VA is being used as kind of a winger, and it's not working to be honest with you. You know, uh, and the issue always was that Isco again doesn't fit that role that well. You know, like, I mean. You know, he's not going to play false nine as he has done this season. It's not going to work. He's not a winger either. Um, is he disciplined enough to play in central midfield? Good question. So, yeah, it's always been an issue because Lovatagi generally prefers to play three in midfield uh, and requires all three of those midfielders to do good work in that position. Um, and the reality is that Isco isn't really disciplined and fit and strong enough to play in that number eight role, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah I think... Obviously, I mean, it's hard to find players of the quality Sevilla need to do that role because it's the most one of the most sought-after positions in the pitch. Um, but, yeah, I'm not sure Isco is that, so it's quite a difficult situation. What's happened to USF and Nasiri, Alan? Uh, 2021, he has an 18-goal season, and it, it wasn't a fluke from 15 expected goals. But since then, around 1,500 minutes in La Liga and only five goals the past you know, season plus. What's gone on with him? He's 25. He should be in his prime. Yeah, I think in his early, I mean, I think that season was very streaky even in itself because mm. if you look back at the goals, he scored 18 goals, but a lot of them were like, I think he scored two hat-tricks and there was like, you know, he, he go on runs and score, you know, two goals in a game and two goals in a game, but he wasn't someone who was performing consistently over the course of the season, as in across the 38 games. And whenever I watched him, I never felt that he was a top-class striker. I think his gifts are predominantly physical. 
he's you know really really strong and really really quick and he's a phenomenal athlete but his finishing ability always left a little to be desired for me as well as his you know link up play and the way he could interact with his teammates in the build up um so i was always kind of expecting him to regress to the mean a bit um although obviously when he exploded in the way he did I, along with everybody else, was kind of caught up and saying, well, maybe he's going to keep going because I remember West Ham came in for him and there was suddenly all this hype around him and all this kind of thing. But he's not maintained it. I'm not being surprised he hasn't maintained it. He suffered injury problems. You know, again, with a player that's kind of highly strong physically as he is, he's like a thoroughbred in many ways. It, it makes sense they pick up muscle issues because they're they're so finely kind of tuned. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? A mm-hmm. bit like Dominic Calvert-Lewin. Premier League, he's kind of constantly picking up these muscle injuries because his game is so based on physicality um, and he's so quick, he's like a sprinter. So they're more kind of finite sometimes than, you know, maybe industrious midfielders or something. So that's it basically. I think it's a, you know, kind of regressing to the mean in one hand and the other hand is injuries, you know. Um, And the problem is that Rafa Mir isn't really a capable deputy. So yeah, it's a big problem to be fair. Um, That Sevilla don't have a proper striker. They hoped Anthony Martial would be that last season, but he's not being it. So, yeah, it's been very disappointing. Yeah, Rafa Mir was very close to signing for Atletico uh, before the start of last season. They ended up going with Mateus Cunha instead and leaving Sevilla a clear run at Mir. Um, and I think that was probably the right move from the Atletico point of view. I think yeah. Cunha is probably better built and, and positioned to succeed in this system as opposed to someone like Rafa Mir, who, who is a good forward. But I think the the ceiling for those two players is pretty starkly different. Definitely. I mean, I think I really like Mateus Cunha. Um, I think he'd be very good for CV, actually. I think Probably, yeah. Starting kind of center forward for them. I mean, like, he's in contention to go to the World Cup of Brazil. He was in the latest squad and played, I think, half an hour against, um, against Ghana, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he's a very talented player. Um, obviously not on the same level ceiling-wise as, you know, Antoine Griezmann or Joao Felix or even Alvaro Morado but I think he could be a really really good you know squad player for Atletico and I think he could have been a good signing for Sevilla but someone like Rafa Mir you know it was another gamble um, within Sevilla's financial realities he done very well with Huesca the season before who obviously got relegated so it made sense and at the time I thought it was a very astute signing but he's just not clicked properly. He doesn't have the lethal finishing ability. He doesn't have the pace. He doesn't really have the strength or the aerial ability that he should have given his frame and size. It's just not worked out really, to be honest with you. You know, I think he's just playing a bit above his level, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think in hindsight, Cunha was a very good decision by the Atletico board. Yeah, I, I don't regret that uh, that for a minute. I really I was pleasantly surprised at Cunha's emergence last season and really hope he is able to kick on and, and progress further this year, I, I think he's our nine of the future. Uh, despite Marata's current position in the squad, I think Cunha is the guy that in two or three years we're going to be looking at as Atletico's starting center forward. Um, are we finally nearing the, the end of the road for Jesus Navas? Alan, that would make me sad if we are. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's natural. Like, it's all now. Um, it was always going to come to an end at some point. Um, so, yeah, it's disappointing, obviously, but it's just what happens. And, He's still an important character in the team. I think he held a meeting behind closed doors with uh, Ivan Rakitic and, and Manchi quite recently, um, just to try and kind of quell the situation arising with the team. But yeah, I remember a couple of seasons ago, and even last season, he was kind of famed for these long runs he was going on of playing every game, being pretty indefatigable. He's very slight, very short. I think he's only like, I think it's uh, 60 kilograms or something. 
and he's only um, you know five foot seven, so he's quite light. Um, so that normally kind of you know if you're built like a kind of a marathon runner, you could be more durable than somebody who's built like a racehorse. Like I said, Enaziri mm-hmm. was. Um, but you know things happen. He gets older. I think he's thirty five or thirty six now, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he bleeds the club. He's from Las Palacios y Villafranca, which is the same place that Fabian Ruiz is from, a small village outside of Sevilla. Also, Gabi is from there, the Barcelona midfielder. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very profitable spring, you could say, of talent. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> a cool cool little village. But, um, but yeah, it's disappointing, but it's natural too. And the problem is that Gonzalo Montiel, who I was impressed with initially when he came in and started last season from River Plate, hasn't kind of developed in the way we hoped he would. He's kind of gone back a bit. He's not a guaranteed starter for Argentina anymore either. So, yeah, it's been a bit disappointing. Um, yeah, but that's, that's not great. It, you, know, you get to 35, 36 in elite football, it's only a matter of time. As you've seen with Fernando Regis too. I think it's, it's funny too because I think sometimes these things happen overnight. I mean, even watching Cristiano Ronaldo against Spain the other night, it was for the first time I watched him and thought he looks like an old man. Yeah, he so, did. But it happened overnight it's kind of funny like these players defy age defy for all the time and then within a blink of an eye they just become old and you, you you see it coming you know it's coming because it's just a numbers game and father time truly is undefeated but it's still when you see it uh you know Navas is an example Luis Suarez last year when when it was clear the the wheels were kind of falling off our season a year ago it was clear that Suarez was no longer the player he was uh, we lived it with Gabby and Diego Godin in years past. Juan, certainly Juan Fran as well. His last couple of years at Atletico were not particularly good. Uh, Felipe Luis. Uh, so you you know these players are going to get old. You know that you know no one's built to play until they're forty or forty five. This is a a game that requires immense physical and mental effort. And it just Navas has played the game at a high level for a long time. He's another example um, of. You know, he's played at Sevilla, Man City, in the Champions League, several campaigns. It, it happens to everyone. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And it's sad, but it's just the way it is, you know. And it's even sadder when there's no replacement to step up and kind of take over. And I think, you know, Navas would love to have gone out in a high of, you know, maybe winning a title with Sevilla in terms of the Copa del Rey or another Europa League or at least finishing strongly. But, you know, if this is to be his last season, it's... It doesn't look like it's going to be a very happy one to end on, you know. I was going to mention this a moment ago, but I really like those those Brazil shirts. That blue is really sharp, and I love the the Jaguar design on the sleeves because you mentioned Cunha. I love that yeah. shirt. Yeah, I know. Me too, me too. But obviously, you know my connections with Brazil. Um, I follow them quite closely, and I'm hoping they do well at the World Cup. But uh, yeah, it's a beautiful gear, beautiful gear for sure. I think Brazil or Argentina, man, one of those two, they got to be the favorites. Yeah, that's why I'm back. I think those are two favorites for me. Obviously, France are the reigning champions, but nobody's retained the title since Brazil in 1962. So it's a statistically improbable thing that they would do it again, especially with all the turmoil in their camp. But yeah, I mean, I think Brazil are probably a better team than Argentina, you know, in terms of, you know, the talent they have going forward and defense, how settled they are, the coach. But there's something with this Argentina side. Obviously, there's, you know, Rodrigo de Paul is kind of bodyguard in chief for Lionel Messi it seems and mm-hmm. um, Spain based players in the team obviously Sevilla based players too Montiel is there Acuna um, Papu Gomez and I think you know the way they are at the moment that kind of nucleus they have in terms of the team spirit and also the form of Lionel Messi and the focus of Lionel Messi and 
seemingly it's probably going to be his last World Cup. I, I, I really do have a feeling it's going to be them who win it. But yeah, I think you're right in saying it's either them or Brazil will be the favorites. As as members of the media, Alan, we love the narrative. And the narrative is just pointing toward Argentina very strongly for this tournament. Um, and, and I wish the Rodrigo de Paul that we see for Argentina is the one we, we could see at Atletico de Madrid. We just haven't really quite seen it yet. Uh, and I think that's for a couple of different reasons. He's been played in an unfamiliar position. He's asked to do things for Atletico. He doesn't really do at Argentina. Um, so there, there's that factoring into that individual situation. But kind of circling back to Atletico, and then we can uh, kind of wrap up wrap up our preview of this game. Um, you mentioned Joao Felix a minute or two ago, and his, in, in particular his ceiling. What have you made of his season so far? This is year four of the so-called Joao Felix experiment, and he hasn't scored a goal yet. No, uh, no assists either since the opening day of the season, Alan. What have you made of his start to the season? I'm disappointed because I, I really like Joao Felix. I really do like him. Um, I've always I again I have a connection with Portugal too I like to keep an eye on the Portuguese game I like Portuguese players and he's someone I really liked I like his kind of spiky character obviously he's kind of maybe run butted heads with Cholo a few times over the course of the last few years but he seems to have responded in the right way um, and like like I said that opening day against Atafe when I was there it, it was him who really impressed me the most obviously he didn't score that day but I think he there were two assists or was it three assists I'm not, if I'm not mistaken three assists yeah yeah a hat trick of assists and he just looked incredible like he was kind of performing with such confidence and borderline arrogance really it was really I thought he looked really uninhibited and I tweeted after the game I was saying this is the year of Joe Felix I've been saying it all summer we're kind of saying you know, this is his time to shine um, he's mature enough now we can't say he's bedding in anymore the team is kind of lacking leadership in that part of the pitch and I mean on paper with the Antoine Griezmann situation what it is that should be the case but it's just not been happening really has it since then and even with Portugal he only came on towards the end of the game and his only meaningful connection, uh, contribution against Spain was to get booked for a pretty petulant challenge so yeah, it's kind of the negative elements of his game what we're seeing there so yeah I mean it's obviously still a long way to go and the World Cup will define the season in many ways because if he was to go to Portugal I mean to Qatar and step up and really perform there and have Portugal go deep into competition. He'd come back with, you know, really impetus for the second half of the season. But conversely, if he was to play very little there, then you could see him coming back and maybe not being fully content and maybe having a falling out and then eventually maybe moving on. Because I do see the logic and, you know, the school of thought that says he might be better off somewhere else, somewhere that's more geared towards his strengths um, than Atletico, especially Atletico in disguise. But at the same time, I'd love to see him succeed there. So, we'll see. Um, I always try and remain positive about Joe. I like him a lot. But, you know, it's kind of hard to be fully confident that he's going to deliver because it seems to be more a mental thing or a consistency thing than a talent thing because we know he's a talent. You know, We know he's good enough to be one of the best players in the world. He's just not doing it. And it's been, as you said, four years now of him not doing it. This was never going to be like easy seamless fit right we know the kind of coach Simeone is we know the system we know the philosophy behind Juliusmo and we know that Joao Felix uh, is a different type of player than the ones carved out in the Juliusmo mold low the many years ago but you know this is four years of this now you know into the our fourth yeah. season of this and we're still just seeing flashes um, mm. granted I, I think 
Simeone could use him better and differently. Too often he's isolated. Too often he's 40 yards from goal, from too far away from where he can do any damage. The attack isn't built for him. It's more built around him, which means he just gets chopped down five, six, seven times a game. Um, he was injured during the derby uh, in a, a challenge by Danny Carvajal, so that kind of conditioned how that game went. But yeah, at some point, he's got to fight through this. I think you know the, the greatest players fight through the fouls and fight through the contact. You know, Neymar has been getting fouled since he was 13 years old, and he's still made a pretty good career out of it. You know, um, Lionel Messi kind of the same way. Um, the great players find their way out of these challenges and find their way out of being targeted. And Joao just hasn't quite found it yet and i would hate to lose him alan because you just know he's going to go somewhere else and, and explode exactly and it's, to be fair as well it's not like forwards of his ilk can succeed atletico under simeone because sure. well antoine griezmann, griezmann did, did. And yeah he was arguably one of the best players in the world and you know around 2016 so are leading up to the world cup you know between 2016 and 2018 before he went to barcelona so it's not like a player of his type, you know, of his profile can't do it in that system. It's just that he isn't, you know. So while I get the argument that if he was to go to City, for instance, and play as a wide forward or a false nine, he would thrive and he, he definitely would. I'm sure he'd become a really top, top player. Um, but similarly, I think that he still could succeed Atletico and he should, he should succeed Atletico as well, if that makes sense. Yeah, we're, we're certainly hoping for that, fingers crossed, that he does. He certainly got the talent. He went on that run of, of games last year where he was just in sensational form in the second half of the year before he got hurt again. Uh, we need to see that again. We He's on an 800-minute goal drought. He hasn't scored at all this season in, in any game since last April against Alaves in a 4-1 win at home. So maybe he breaks that that streak this weekend at the, at the Pete one Allen. Atletico usually don't do well at the Pete one though. Uh, last win there was in 2018, that really wild 5-2 game just a couple of weeks after the Copa del Rey elimination. Um, Griezmann scored a hat trick. That was a pretty intense and pretty wild game. Atleti haven't gone to Sevilla and won since, though. Uh, lost 2-1 at the Pies one last year and drew 1-1 at the Metropolitano. How do we think this game on Saturday evening is going to go? Well, I was on a podcast this morning previewing the weekend's action, and my prediction was a draw. I think it's going to be a low-scoring draw, just because I think neither team are in great form, obviously. I think Sevilla are better than what they've shown. I think the international break would have done them good. I think Sevilla, while they're not a good team this year, they're not going to be, you know, charging for the title or pushing into the, you know, upper echelons of the table. I do think they're better than what they've shown, so I can see them putting up a good fight, being difficult to beat. It's going to be Saturday evening at the Sanchez Pijuan. It'll be full. It'll be aggressive. All the locals would have gotten their fair bit of Cruz Campo in their systems. They'll be <laughs> up for the game, full of, in, in full of voice. It'll be a very interesting one, you know. Um, Atletico, similarly, I think they're obviously a good side, but they aren't firing in all cylinders in a way that would make me fear them were I Sevilla going to this game. But at the same time, I don't think either team has enough quality to win the game. So my prediction, if I was to make it, would be a draw. And if it's going to be a victory from either side, it could be from either side. I think it would be a 50-50. But I think that whoever won would win quite narrowly, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's probably right. Um, neither team has is really off to a particularly good start. Atletico have had more highs than, than Sevilla had to, have had to this point in the season. But... 
Um, Atleti have had a lot of injuries and suspensions, especially in defense. Jose Jimenez and Stefan Savage have, have not played together yet this season, which is really strange to think about, but it's true. Uh, Savage is hopefully coming back into the team on Saturday. He has been out since match day two against Villarreal. He got a muscle injury there. Jimenez has been gone for a few games now, but he returned to training earlier this week. Uh, Sergio Regulon, former Sevilla wingback, still has not made his Atleti debut as he recovers from groin surgery. Doesn't look like Tomolema is going to play either, and Mario Hermoso is suspended. Uh, There is some good news to report from Atleti's uh, POV, though. Uh, Simeone has tried out the 4-4-2 in training this week, potentially with Axel Witzel in midfield next to Koke, who is going to have the appearances record all to himself on Saturday, Alan. Number 554 for Atletico. And he's only 30 years old. Amazing. Amazing. What a player. Uh, Actually, I want to ask you about Koke, Alan, um, because I've been reflecting on him quite a bit in the last week or so. He tied the appearances record against Madrid, and now he's going to have it all for himself. How do we properly contextualize Koke's career? Is he underappreciated, overlooked? Do we appreciate him just enough? Does he get enough respect? Yeah, I think it's. I think often when players who are at a club for a long time, they're they're always underrated because sometimes, you know, if a player leaves a club that he comes through and goes to another club. His status immediately changes, you know. I mean, even Antoine Griezmann, that's why he did that, I think. He wanted to arrive at a club as a superstar because when you're developed by a club, you know, Sergio Ramos is another example. When he was at Sevilla, um, the reason he left from Madrid, apparently, as the story goes, is that he asked, you know, Jose Maria Del Niro, the president of Sevilla, to sign a 10-year contract where basically he would match the um, highest earner at the club throughout the duration of that contract. And the president told him in response that an academy product will never be the highest earner at this club. Um, and then he promptly left, went to Real Madrid. I think he was the record signing for a defender at his age or something like that, or the most expensive major in European football in 2005 when he went there for, I think it was 30 million euros. So he arrived in Madrid, not as a Cantorano, not as somebody like Nacho Fernandez, but as an import who cost you know a lot of money. And his status immediately changed. The way everyone viewed him, whether it's at the club or outside of the club, changed with it. For someone like Koke, who stayed at Madrid all his career, he's always been viewed as, you know, Mr. Atletico in many ways, you know, a club legend, a stalwart. And while that buys him so much respect and kudos from, you know, so many people across European football, it also cheapens his brand in a way, if that makes sense. It's a ridiculous thing to say, but it's true. Because even somebody like Jesus Navas left Sevilla to go to Man City and then mm-hmm. came back, you know saying like, and it was like that kind of changed the way he was viewed in many ways. You know, similarly, Ivan Rakitic at Sevilla left Sevilla to go to Barcelona and then came back. I guess you know Saul Niguez is somebody who left Atletico with the intention of doing that by going to Chelsea. Obviously, backfired against him, but you know, I think that's something players often do because it kind of changes the way they're perceived in many ways. And even though everybody should acknowledge Koke for what he is, which is a club servant, which is somebody who's been at the top of the game for, you know, a decade, being consistently one of Diego Simeone, who's a demanding guy, one of his most trusted lieutenants, you know, obviously led him to the title in 2020. He should be given so much respect, but given he stayed at that all his career, and even by Atletico fans, I think he's not viewed in that light, if that makes sense. It's kind of a crazy situation, but that's my take in it, that, 
he's not given the the respect he deserves because of non-footballing reasons. If you get me. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, he's been whistled more frequently since he took the captain's band than like ever before, which is really a strange phenomenon that I don't particularly like. Uh, but you know, that's also an element of modern football. Fans demand success, and they demand it yesterday. That's, yeah, like, no, that's so kind of the way it goes. As a captain, you're the uh, you're the kind of the first head in the chopping block. You know, you're the the symbol of the team in many ways, and I guess that's kind of you know it's a blessing and a curse. It's great when you're winning, like when they won the title. I'm sure it took a lot of pressure off of him, but the reality is that when you're underperforming as they are right now, and they were for parts of last season, um, you're the first kind of you know the first one to get whistled, as you mentioned. Yeah, and and we've been critical of Koke here because I I think part of Atletico's midfield struggles can not necessarily boiled down to, but a, a, a percentage of them are due to Koke. Just he's played so many games and he's 30, but it's, it's an old 30, you know, like I have concerns. He can't really cut it anymore at the very, very top of the game as he used to, but you know, he's still our captain and he's Mr. Atletico. I think is a great way to put it. One club man. He very easily could have gone to Man United or Barcelona earlier in his career, 2014. Both teams were very interested in signing him. He easily could have gone and become the next Xavi, as the now Barcelona coach expected him to be, but he didn't. And I think his individual successes, um, his his career has come at a great personal sacrifice. He could have had bigger goal numbers, bigger assist numbers, maybe won more titles, at a club like Barca or at Man United, but he stayed at Atletico and adapted to the changing circumstances around him. He has always been Simeone's top guy. He will, he will never be dropped from the 11 as long as Simeone is in charge. And I think there's something really kind of romantic and virtuous about that, you know, that, that he stayed when he didn't have to. Perhaps he, he was being encouraged not to, but he did anyway. I think also what often happens to players of his like in his personality or that they're not appreciated when they're there, but as soon as he retires, they'd be appreciated more. Oh, yeah. So, you know, I think, like, I think with the benefit of hindsight, Atletico fans will love him and they'll recognize who he is and what he is and what he was and who he was. But while he's there in your midfield and you're losing the battle in midfield, he's the one you're cursing. Do you know what I mean? Like, But I think once he retires, that he'll be remembered differently. It happens at every club. I mean, like, even at Everton, which is my team, you know, you've Seamus Coleman, who's a veteran. He's been there since uh, 2009. And he's, you know, the, the club captain. He's been the only member of the team who's there since the David Moyes days and, you know, the late 2000s. And he's probably the most criticised player in the club because they failed to replace him and bring in an adequate right back who can, you know, basically upgrade in his position. Um, but, you know, you know, as soon as he retires, he's going to be lionised, one of the legends of the club's history, one of the icons of the club's history. But while he's there, he's the one who's cursed because he's almost like he's one of their own, you know. And Koke is one of Atletico's own. He's he's of Atleti, you know. So he's always going to get it a bit rougher than somebody who's, you know, a blowing. Yeah, we're really going to miss him when he retires. And I, I think there are quite a few fans who don't realize that. Um, I, I kind of forgotten Everton are your your club in the Premier League, Alan. Uh, survived, ever so narrowly survived relegation last season. Uh, what do you make of their uh, their team this year? They're set up this year. Yeah, it's been it's been not bad. I mean, they've won one game. Um, they've strengthened in key areas. They've improved their defense. They've improved their midfield as well. They're looking good. They're looking difficult to beat. 
uh, aggressive, competitive, um, which is all you can ask for, really. And that's what club. I think Everton is similar to Atletico in many ways because their fans, their supporters, kind of cherish a certain kind of football. It's not tiki taka. It's not champagne football. It's more aggressive, you know, front foot, uh, competitive football, and that's what they're delivering so far this season. So they're still lacking their proper goal threat because Dominic Cavalloon is unfit. Um, he's injured consistently. Uh, Richardson left to join Spurs, so they're lacking that, you know, lightning rod in the attack. But you know the other parts of the team are performing quite well. So I'd be hopeful they can maintain this form and you know finish comfortably mid-table this season, and then maybe strengthen the summer or the January transfer window and build in that season by season. Because I think that uh, that's all we can hope for right now. Because you know the damage that's been done to the club over the last few years has been quite debilitating. It would have been really surreal to see them go down and play in the championship. A club that big with that much history. It just would have been really surreal. Yeah, well, only Arsenal have been in there in the top flight longer than Everton. They've outlasted everybody else. So it's um, it would have been very damaging for the club because of their financial situation too. It would have been quite ruinous. Um, it's not like, you know, a smaller club getting relegated and then coming back with parachute payments. Everton of such a... A big budget and big financial commitments that relegation would have been ruinous so as well as being a blow morally and you know spiritually it would also be a blow financially so um, I remember that game against Crystal Palace and they stayed up they were losing two and a half time they came back to win 3-2 it was quite um, quite uh, what's the word uh, um, relieving I'm watching it in Seville and ringing my dad and my brothers after and we were all completely relieved like because uh, at halftime we were considering okay who we sell all this kind of thing it was very 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 worrying to be honest with you so yeah it was a, it was an amazing moment at the same time you know coming back and Dominic Cavalloon scoring the winning goal diving header but uh, it was very stressful as well yeah that was a great moment um, and you know it, it stayed in the Premier League I mean, you got you got to start somewhere when you've had a, a, a shave that close and you know, hoping that they stay up and finish solidly mid-table. Uh, in non-football matters, Alan, I also happen to know you are a big fan of the HBO television series The Sopranos, as am I. <laughs> yeah, I love it. Absolutely love it. Absolutely so, love it. Be- before we sign off, I would love to talk a little bit of The Sopranos with you because I also love this particular television program. I think it's great, maybe the best TV show of, of all time. Um, whenever I see a Sopranos out-of-context tweet, uh, just makes my whole day. <laughs> One of those kinds of things. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I watched it twice. I think it's twice I watched it. I watched it first. I actually started watching it. That, you won't believe this, but I actually began watching it, right? And I think it was a... I started watching it in the morning. It was, it was during when I was in school, so I was uh, off. I think it was in holidays. And the day I started watching it, James Gaddafini died. Oh, no. That weird. day, jeez. Yeah. I think I think I, heard, I got the news that afternoon, and I watched it in the morning. I was like, "Whoa, that's weird." That is weird. Yeah, it's really freaky, actually. But I watched it anyway when I was maybe I think probably sixteen and seventeen. I kind of watched it all, and then I watched it again recently last year, and it just it's, it's brilliant. Like I, I appreciate it so much more. It's so intelligent. It's uh, so funny as well. You know, James Gandolfini is an amazing actor. You know, Christopher Montesanti is brilliant. You know, Paulie is brilliant. Silv is brilliant. You know, it just there's so many good characters that I can go on and on, you know. Um, it's just, like you said, the out of context is so funny on Twitter. <laughs> um, 
whenever I see an episode that's on TV, I always just watch it, you know, just randomly. It's just brilliant, absolutely brilliant. And it's just such a funny show, too. And, like, the meme potential, even now, you know, 15 years after it went off the air, the, the meme potential is still through the roof. Like, you see Chrissy in a neck brace just for all kinds of different situations. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because <laughs> I think that during lockdown, a lot of people got into it. Like, I know James Richardson. I don't know if you follow him. Oh, yeah, yeah. Early football show. He, he started watching it during lockdown, and he, he was constantly making references to it in the podcast. It was very funny because it was like, you know, what seems to always be the case is that if you get into Sopranos, you become obsessed with it, you know, and you really become kind of consumed by the world around it. Like, it's always the way. You never just watch the show. You kind of amorph, amorphize yourself within the universe. So it was very, very funny to hear people experience it secondhand, you know. But mm-hmm. uh, brilliant show. Like you find yourself saying "Oof, my own" at least a couple times a day. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, of course, of course. Or even if you know, you know, making a late night snack, you just think of Tony, you know, with his bowl of cereal or whatever. Or some know. gabagool in the fridge. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> 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 Fuck. Yes, yeah, it's, it's pretty. It's absolutely pretty. Do you have a favorite episode? I know it's tough because they're all really good, but do you have a one episode in particular that you'd say is your favorite or the standout episode of The Sopranos? Oof. Um, I know everybody says the uh, the Forest episode with Paulie and Chrissy. Yeah. That's not my favorite. Um, I always thought it was really funny. I don't remember when Christopher kind of is collecting um when christopher is basically at war with paul B about the paying for the uh the bill the restaurant yes. bill you know? <laughs> i think it's an where i think he, he gets so pissed off that he's uh he goes into a bakery and he like takes his anger out and this guy serving him and shoots him in the foot and it's obviously a homage to um the goodfellas when he gets shot in the foot yeah by uh joy pesci, joy joy, pesci. Joy, yeah joy pesci yeah yeah, he shoots him. It's very obviously like you know in that scene he's the bottle. I'm spoiling for the Goodfellas for everybody, anybody. But he's you know obviously the guy who's getting the bottles and stuff for the gangsters having a, a card game or something. And Joe Pesci shoots him in the foot. And, and then obviously the homage is that in this scene he's the adult. He's angry and he shoots that uh, the poor kid who's like you know stood up to the wrong guy basically in the foot. But uh, but very very funny because like, it's funny because it's like it's despicable behavior obviously but like I find it hilarious you know that he just shot somebody in the foot out of pure anger like <laughs> it's, it's twisted but very funny it's so good it's such a good show yeah I've only done one complete uh watch through but I'm gonna do another one at least I'm, I mean I'm gonna buy the series on blu-ray and just have a ball with it because it's just such a good show and is I think it gets better on rewatch you know definitely 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 oh man well, all right, we're going to leave it there for now. Alan Feely, uh, first-time guest. I think you did pretty dang well. Thank you so much for joining me on today's show. No worries, Jeremy. My pleasure. Happy to come on over whenever you need me again. You can follow Alan on Twitter. Keep up with his work uh, through social media. You can keep up with us on Into the Calderon at, uh, on our Twitter account uh, at intothecalderon.com, patreon.com slash Chat. Alan, I can't remember what your handle is. Can you tell me? Yeah, no worries. It's Azul Feely, A-Z-U-L-F-E-E-H-E-O-Y. Beautiful. Go follow Alan on Twitter at Azul Feely. Uh, you can also subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, the Atletico Madrid Podcast Network. Just search into the Calderon. You can keep up with all new and archived episodes of our show and our sister show, the Partido a Partido Podcast. I know they just dropped a new episode this morning, so uh, into the Calderon diehards are getting two podcasts for the price of one today. How lucky are we? Um and we will be back 
this weekend, very early next week, to discuss the fallout from Sevilla and Atletico from this partidazo at the Pithuan on Saturday night. Uh, thank you all for listening. We'll catch you all again soon. Adios.